Hi, I'm Julia. And I'm Sam. I'm a composer. And I'm an actor. And this is the 29-Hour Podcast. Julia and I both uh, spent a lot of time developing new uh, pieces of theater. We actually met um, developing one of Julia's musicals. And along the way, we've gotten to work with some incredibly talented, super smart artists. We always just want to pick their brains. So this podcast is our conversations with those people that we are excited to share with you. This week, we talked to writer Chris Diamond. Hope you enjoy. Wait, how do you guys know each other? We know each other. I, I was actually trying to remember this uh, today. We met in the Drama Skills Fellows, yeah. right? I was like, I, I don't uh-huh. think we had crossed paths before that. No. Um, but yeah, but we I in- feel like with a thing like that, especially because it was like us, it was... You guys, me and Gordon, Hannah Cole. Hannah right? Cole, yeah. Uh, we, we were the only, there wasn't any other musical Yeah, because there was like six playwrights, right? But just three of us. I think so. Unless there's someone I'm totally forgetting about. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so, though. Was that 10 years ago? Um. Yeah, I think it. I think it was two thousand nine. Happy oh ten year anniversary yeah. of knowing wow, each other. Wow, that's weird. Oh my god, this that's Sunday is my ten years of moving to New York City. Yeah. Ooh, it's wild. That's a lot of, that's a lot of pressure. That's like <laughs> well, official. You're, well, you'll I, be I, officially in New York. I don't feel like it's pressure. I feel like it's like, okay, good. I'm official. Like, Aww. and do you feel official? Yeah, I've felt official for a while though. Because oh, okay. <laughs> I still don't feel. I've been here no? longer than ten really? years, and I don't. I don't feel like a New Yorker. Where you know? Where are you from? I'm from Pittsburgh originally. Okay. So, like like the Pittsburgh proper, or like suburbs. Uh, the suburbs, uh-huh. which is really what where everyone from Pittsburgh is. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, from, okay. For the most part, nobody really. Gotcha. Very few people actually live in downtown Pittsburgh. Right. So, okay. Yeah, the city limits. I guess there are some people who live there, but most people are from the, yeah. the burbs. I what? wonder, because I grew up in San Francisco, uh-huh. the city proper, and so, like, moving to New York didn't feel like, like, I remember a lot of my um, contemporaries <laughs> were, <laughs> were like, oh, God, like, the, the pace of this feels just, like, so crazy, and I was like, does it? Like, yeah. so I wonder if, like, I had a head start, you know what I mean? I think it's a real leg up, because I was, I mean, I was really intimidated yeah. about moving. Yeah, it was more, it was more the anxiety of pre-moving here than it was actually adjusting to being here, I think. Oh, um, Did like, you come straight from college? Uh, I came from graduate school. Right, right, I came right. straight from graduate school. Um, and did you go straight from college to grad school? No, not I, I, not that grad school. I went straight from college to one grad school, and then I worked for a couple of years, and then I went okay. back to grad school again because I, I make really good decisions. <laughs> and uh, then moved right to New York after that. But and so it, was the pre... Was the... Um, the like getting nervous pre-moving was that about like living in the city or was that about like living in New York City like and it was, like career stuff I think it was more just the logistics of actually living in a city the size of New York gotcha. and having to deal with you know the MTA and, and commuting every day yeah. and, and finding a job and, and all that sort of stuff 
Um, and the, the size and the scope of the city was really intimidating to yeah. me, I think. <laughs> I can actually see it being more intimidating if you've lived a little life first, because since I moved here for grad school, it's like I didn't have any experience really living like a person anywhere. So mm. it's like I didn't have this to be like, oh, this would be harder than some other thing I've experienced. Yeah. yeah. And you're moving with like a very particular set of um, daily tasks. Right. Yeah. yeah. Regimented schedule. Yeah, especially yeah. that program where you're just like in school from like 9 a.m. to like 11 p.m. every night. Yeah. It's like there's not a lot of decisions you have to make as long as you can pay your rent. <laughs> yeah, you probably had a couple of other things to be anxious about <laughs> that overshadowed that, I would assume, going into that program. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I... Yeah, no, totally. I like was not at all when I was picking grad schools. Uh -huh. I thought I was going to go to grad school for film scoring. And I did like a last second pivot to go to musical theater school. Interesting. So there was, I had like a certain amount of existential, like, am I doing the right thing? Interesting. Oh huh. And did you, I mean, I guess you couldn't have applied to other musical theater writing programs because there aren't any, right? Yeah. But <laughs> did you apply to a bunch of film scoring programs? I think I applied to the USC film scoring and then a couple for like straight up composition, UCLA and Columbia, uh -huh. which I remember, and then this one. Interesting. And what? Yeah. What ultimately was the determining factor in making that decision for you? I think, like, in a way, New York actually was a part of it. Because for me, New York always felt very, like, safe. And it was the most known thing. Because I grew up in Ithaca and I went to college around here, too. So, like, I took lots of, like, quick trips to New York. And it felt like I had friends here. I had a sister here. And I think, in a way, I was really afraid of the classical composition programs. Like, I didn't. Mm. I felt like such an imposter even like on the campuses and like talking to the professors. Yeah. And when I visited NYU, it was actually weird because like the cycle above me, who's like the classes I sat in on, notoriously didn't get along. So I remember both thinking that like the curriculum and the classes were so cool, but like it seems weird how nobody likes each other. Oh, wow. <laughs> but ended up going anyway. And then my cycle did love each other. So. Uh -huh. And had you been writing musical theater prior to that? I'd written one musical in high school, but I didn't do it at all in college. Wow. That's so funny that that's where you ended up. It's, I know. It's really interesting to to look back at those pivotal decisions in life and, and think about what it was that, that brought you to where you are, you know, and how your life would have veered differently yeah. had you chosen yeah. otherwise. Do you feel like you have some of those like pivot points that come to mind? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting. I mean, school is obviously, I, I think, probably a big one for everyone. That yeah. sort of road not taken. What if you had gone somewhere else? What if you had made a different decision? Um, what was your, like, other narrative? What? Well, I think, uh, you know, my decision to, to go back to graduate school the second time and, and study playwriting, um, you know, that's where I met Michael Kuman, my, yeah. who, who's become my writing partner since then. Um, and had I, you know, it's, it's weird to think that if I had chosen not to apply that particular year or, you know, to go a different year, we might never have crossed paths and, and life would have played out very differently consequently. So, you know, it's always utterly useless, but kind of entertaining <laughs> to, to think about those kinds of things. Wow. So, so you, wait, so you went to grad school for playwriting and ended up with a musical theater writing partner? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Is, was that, I mean, <laughs> I guess as I was preparing questions for today, I was, I was wondering like, 
I was going to ask, how did you meet? And like, when you met, did you envision that it would become the partnership that it has? Like, how long did you think it would last? But like, now it sounds like you were looking for something totally different. Well, I secretly, I was, I, I was a closeted musical theater writer <laughs> okay. when I when I went back to school. I assumed, um, you know, I was I was really interested in in dramatic writing of of all different forms, mm-hmm. but musical theater was always the thing I was most interested in because that was kind of my gateway to the theater to begin with. Okay, uh, but when I went to to CMU, I was under the mistaken impression that musical theater would have a real stigma to it in a dramatic writing program mm. uh-huh. uh, that was playwriting, screenwriting focused. Uh, so I assumed that it would not be smiled upon to be interested in writing musicals um, and ended up being very mistaken about that. The, the guy who ran the writing program there was actually really into musicals and, and really fostered my interest in that once I, I sort of got comfortable enough to, to come out of the closet, as it were. <laughs> um, and, you know, in fact, there were a couple of courses that were specifically designed to, to writing for musical theater, one of which was a, a lyric writing class that Michael, who was in the music school, he was a, a composition, an undergraduate composition major in the music school, talked his way into this class that was, it was basically him and, and all of the players writing students gotcha. um so we spent i think it was a half a semester course so we spent half a semester sitting across the room from one another and not speaking a word to each other wow. the whole time um but you know we were exposed to each other's work uh through what we present in class and was he presenting lyrics or yes he was writing music and lyrics so yeah. he was you know the rest of us were just writing lyrics and he would come in with fully formed songs <laughs> um and so i secretly would you know sit there across the room and like hope that he would he would ask me to work with him on something or, or want to collaborate um and it never happened throughout the course of the <laughs> class. But then um, towards the end of the semester, uh, the the musical theater performance majors were looking to raise money for their showcase trip. And so they asked Michael if he would write some songs for them to, to put out an album to raise some money. And there was a really tight um, deadline on, on how long he had to turn it around and he didn't feel confident making that himself. So he asked me if I would be willing to to collaborate on a few songs. So, you know, we, we met up and, and sat down and just kicked around some ideas for what we thought was kind of just a one-off project, write a few songs, raise some money for this showcase trip sort of thing, um, and ended up really having a good time with it. It went really well. We, we got a lot of positive feedback and a lot of support from, from the community there at school. Um, and you know, had one one of the first songs that we wrote together was performed by Patina Miller. Um, you know, so that it was kind of a, a cool experience. Um, and then I, I ended up convincing him to stick around in Pittsburgh for another year to work on my thesis project, which we wrote as a as a musical together. And uh-huh. so it just sort of grew from there, and we've been working together ever since. Yeah. Golly. <laughs> There's something so magical about like just organically finding your collaborator like that. Yeah, I, I think I took it for granted for a really long time um, because it is it is such a difficult relationship to to find. It's, it's you know like like any long term relationship <laughs> in life. You know, it, it, it's really hard to find someone who you have that kind of connection with and who you work um, so well together together with, not only artistically but you know in, in terms of carving out a professional career. Um, and we just really lucked into it and met each other very early on. Um, and I know that's not the case for a lot of people. So um, I, I think I've I've grown to appreciate how fortunate we are. Yeah. Do you feel like your relationship has changed at all over the years? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we've been writing together for 
something like 12, 13 years now, and it's it's certainly evolved um, in a lot of different ways, um, as it as you naturally do, I think, as collaborators when you work together that closely for such a long period of time. You know, when we when we started out, we didn't we weren't even really friends when we started <laughs> working together. You know, that was that was kind of the 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 focus of our our partnership was just the writing um and you know we've we've obviously grown to be be a lot closer since then and gotten to know each other a lot more and you know our working relationship has has really developed as well you know there's always that um it's a very intimate thing to to work with someone that closely on on any kind of writing and at the beginning it's it's hard to be that open and that vulnerable to someone and i think we've gotten a lot better about sort of creating a language and a, and a comfort level with each other where we can really be honest, which is what you yeah. really need. Yeah, that is hard. I can, I remember back at NYU, like you'd work with someone for a week or two weeks and then you're matched with the next, then you're matched with the next. And there would be so many pairs that just didn't get along. And thinking back about it now, I do think that a lot of it is like just figuring out immediately how to match that thing of like, if you don't agree with someone's idea, but they have vulnerably and you know kindly given you that idea, how you react to that? Yeah, it's really easy when you when you everyone agrees on something, right, you know. Right. But it's it's navigating those waters when things are a little rockier that that really I think ultimately makes or breaks a partnership like that. And especially with you guys, I mean, I feel this with Gordon too. That just like at a certain point, your your career feels so dependent on that other person. Absolutely. Which is scary. Yeah, it is, it is kind of scary to think about, to, to rely on anyone in that way. But, um, you know, it's, it's in a lot of ways comforting too, because at least you've got somebody there True. with you. You know, this business is so isolating in so yeah. many different ways to, to know that you have someone to rely on um, and who can, can kind of help push you when you're in those periods where maybe you're not, not feeling as motivated or as driven, you know, I, I think it, it, it also is, is incredibly, um, helpful and, and supportive to, to have somebody who's, who's along for the journey with you, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Do you feel like there are certain like Michaelisms either artistically or professionally that have sort of like rubbed off on you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd like to think so. Um, I think I've learned a lot from from working with him. And, you know, not even not even just in terms of the craft itself, but things I think that, that spill over into life. I mean, I think anyone you have that kind of long term relationship with, they're going to influence you, and you're gonna you're gonna see things in them that you admire and that you you sort of hope to adopt into your own practice. Um, I think one thing Mike, Michael is really really good at being really hard on himself um, mm. in terms of the work. He's really, really good about being self-critical and sort of never uh, accepting anything less than than the best. And I think that's one thing that I uh, really envy in him and, and try yeah, to, to improve upon. Yeah, that's not one of my natural strengths. No, me neither. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really good. It's good to have a partner who pushes you in that way and to kind of like see how you can, you can foster that on yourself, you know, um, that's something I, I try to improve upon. Yeah. I'm just sort of like, uh, the, the thing that's fascinating to me is like with, with someone like you guys both have, where it's like, you're sort of like enmeshed with them career wise. Like, did you, did you <laughs> like, how did you like when, I don't know how to ask this question. <laughs> like, when it when it was starting out, like did it did it feel like it was going to be this like big thing that lasted as long as it has, or like 
Not necessarily. I don't know that we ever really thought about it. Yeah. To be honest, I think we were, <laughs> I think we were really naive uh, in in many many ways when we started working out because we were coming right out of school. Um, so I don't know that we ever really. We were kind of the only two people there who wrote musical theater. Uh-huh. So it was sort of just natural that that we paired up um, and then kind of worked together on, on the first couple projects. And then when we we moved here, it just kind of continued. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like we immediately met and, and right. thought, oh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna work together for the rest of our careers. Um, Did you consider writing with other people? Um, sure, like, and, and you know, we do have we do have an open <laughs> writing relationship in, in that you know we're not necessarily opposed to either of us working with with someone else on anything. But um, we've been fortunate enough that we've had enough opportunities and that we enjoy working together uh enough that we really haven't in in a long time um uh-huh. so it's not that we envisioned this this being you know this permanent thing but it just kind of gradually one opportunity led to the next yeah. and it sort of naturally progressed to a point where suddenly um you know you start thinking of of yourself as as part of part of a pair and not necessarily just a and in, not that I don't think of myself as an individual, <laughs> sometimes it feels that way. You know, like your like artistic identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of times with with musical theater writing pairs, that's that's just the way people tend to to categorize right. you. You know what I mean? There are those iconic pairings who, yeah. even if they if they do have s- significant projects with other people, right. you know, Rodgers right. and Hammerstein right. are always Rodgers and Hammerstein. You yeah. know, so I think it sort of naturally uh, falls into a period where where people start to kind of just connect you. Yeah. Um, Was that like, did that start happening? And then you were like, Oh, I guess I'm part of this pair or what? I think, I mean, I think, yes, I think we were making active decisions that led to that happening without necessarily thinking of it in terms of the strategic long-term thing. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I I think there's also a a significant amount of, of this industry that is predicated on, kind of how you how you market yourself and your work um, yeah. and that kind of leads to that you know what I mean in the way that we we tried to put our work out into the world and generate opportunities um, it's easier to do that when you're for lack of a, a better word I, I hate to I really hate to say it this way but like when you've got kind of a brand mm-hmm. you know what I mean um, and, and so I think that also helps to kind of um, solidify that pairing. This leads me to another question I have, because I feel like when we first met, like when I was first getting to know you and we were mm-hmm. in Dramatist Guild and I was sniffing out, like, who are these other people? I feel like at that time, you guys' brand, I thought of, was sort of like like dark topics in a way, because it was Golden Gate and Danny Girl were the two I remember, like, around that time. Do you feel like, do you feel like that is still your brand? Uh, I, I think <laughs> we've we've evolved a bit since then. I, I think we, we do have an interest in that kind of work. Um, but I, I think we, we realized pretty early on that that's a, a pretty limited brand in terms of I, earning know, a living. I love that um, brand. Yeah, I mean, I, I do too. And I, I definitely still really like writing that that kind of stuff and really want to, to pursue some of that work. But um, at the same time, um, as a result of some of our experiences with that, I, I think we we wanted to kind of open up and, and do different things and, um, to work on some projects that we felt equally passionately about, but that were 
also not projects we had to fight to get into the door with because mm-hmm. um, those, those first couple of musicals that we wrote are very dark um i and, love golden gate so much thank you I, I i like it a lot too i've got a soft spot in my heart uh for it but it's it's difficult to to you know walk into a, an artistic director's office and say hey we have this this really exciting musical about about people who jump off of the golden gate bridge you know it's not necessarily a crowd pleaser it's not not sort of the thing that um necessarily uh people are are chomping at the bit to produce um so some of the the next projects we moved on to we we wanted to have to work uh, uh work less to sell them and and to get them mm. produced um and, and we just I, I think one of the things i hate about about calling uh, yourself a brand as a writer i mean it just kind of makes me ill to to even say it is uh, <laughs> you know i i don't think we want to just write anything I, right. I i don't i don't necessarily want to to be identified with one particular kind of work um so I do, I, you know, I, I definitely have those, those instincts and that love for material that is edgy and that is dark and nothing excites me more than a musical that sounds like it should not be a musical hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we've written a lot of stuff for, for young audiences and, and things like that, that, that I really enjoy as well. So, you know, I, I, I'd like to try to defy expectations and to, to challenge myself and to, to do things that are different and try to do something that you've never done before. Yeah. Well, can I ask you, since we're speaking about brand, can I ask you, so you guys released uh, like an album of like standalone songs, right? Yes. Which I remember getting and loving. Oh, thank you. And I also remember that like right around that time, there were a bunch of composers like doing the same kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. was that like a conscious like branding strategy too or like i think um yeah for us it was definitely a conscious decision a a way to kind of get our work out into the world yeah um and i i think you know there there was something in the zeitgeist about that particular moment when it uh seemed like a a really good idea and also seemed feasible I, i think it i think it coincided with really kind of the the beginnings of Kickstarter mm-hmm. um, that it was it was early enough in the Kickstarter phase where people weren't inundated with yeah. requests to support every project under the sun um, but the Kickstarter was well founded enough that people kind of knew what it what, what it was so that's that's how we raised most of the money for mm-hmm. our album and I know a couple of other uh, people who did albums around the same time yeah. did the same thing so we definitely you know like talked to other people who had done it and looked at other people who had done it and and um, were inspired by that and, and learned from their experiences and I, I think, you know, this is such a close-knit community as it is that, that ideas like that do kind of build off of each other yeah. and, and people kind of um, learn from and, and are inspired by people who are, who are doing similar things. And when you see someone else do something that, that works, um, you know, you, why, not, why yeah. not try to do it as well? And especially there, there's just so few opportunities to really put your work out there as a, as a writer for musical theater that... Um, if you find a way that you can do it and you can manage doing it on your own, um, you know, and we had this this sort of uh, collection of, of standalone songs, um, it seemed like a, a great chance to kind of get some more exposure for yeah. our, ourselves. Well, I guess because, like, it, it, it was such a great platform because the songs were fucking awesome. But, like, Thank you. it is sort of a different thing than saying, like, I have this musical, you know? So, like, how... I don't know. I, I guess I don't know what the question is, but like, oh, I think that. I mean, I think that's a really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting point, and it's, it's something you know that I, I I think is both a 
it's a double-edged sword in uh-huh. a way for musical theater writers and and for for people who are who are kind of um you know musical theater writers at at this particular moment or or have started out you know in the last 10 to 15 years or so is that having that those kind of self-contained cabaret songs that you can put out on YouTube or put an put out on Spotify or, or whatever venue you, you choose to expose them to the world in is a great marketing tool. It's a great way to get people to know your work. It's, yeah. it's um, wonderful to, you know, get those into the hands of actors who are looking for new material for looking for audition songs and things like that. Um, so it can really, really help. And in a lot of ways that uh, for, for Michael and me, you know, that was the first way that people were exposed to our work was through some of those self-contained songs that we wrote. But it also, I think, can be limiting in getting back to that idea of branding, uh, because at a certain point, that's what you become known for, right. you know. And I think there are a lot of a lot of theater writers who who would be considered our contemporaries who who've been hindered by the idea that they only write cabaret songs, right. and and um, you know, people start to think of them as as that rather than writers of musicals. So I think you've you've gotta kind of work to to develop both and and not fall into to the pitfalls of that um, yeah. and to make sure that that you're working on and promoting musicals as well because really that's that's what it's about you know? yeah I, mean, I, I love writing cabaret songs i love writing self-contained songs it's it's really nice especially after you've spent you know <laughs> eight to ten years writing a musical that finally sees the light of day it's sometimes nice to say oh let's let's take a day and write a, a two and a half minute song that will then be done and we will never have to touch it again yeah. um so but you know you people are very quick in the, in this business i think to want to pigeonhole you and totally. say oh you do this thing and that's the thing you do and and you know they they lack the time or imagination to consider that just because you do that thing well it doesn't mean you don't do other things as well right. as you do that so um you know it feels sometimes like you're you're always kind of <laughs> Even when you succeed at something, it, it becomes a, a, a bit of a trap for you as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's my really optimistic. <laughs> well, I mean, that album wasn't a trap for you. Thank you. Um, I mean, it, it it did feel it did feel for for a while. As though that's what we were were known for, yeah. and that there were people who were were kind of kind of said, "Oh, that's great, but can you write a musical?" Yeah, um, and then you have to sort of prove your, prove yourself right. in that regard as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, I mean, I'm really excited because yeah. you're you're our first ge- guest who offered to like bring us a clip of, of something. You I got. never turned down an opportunity <laughs> for for shameless self promotion. Um, so. Is this like a, a cast album of the this is Seattle a production? It or? is a world premiere recording. Okay, uh, is, like a, is, a studio recording. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So Michael and I have have self produced um, a, an, an album of songs from the noteworthy life of Howard Barnes, um, which we just did a, a production of uh, at the Village Theater out out in Seattle. Um, so it features most of the cast from that production. Cool. Um, and and we're really really excited about it to to get it out into the world and and sort of help to to just get more exposure for that for that show. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's really we're really really thrilled with how it's turned out we've had a number of incredibly talented people working on it so yeah we're excited we're going to release it later this summer hell yeah sweet wait i feel like i this is like my like seth meyers moment where it's like do you want to set up set the up clip? the clip oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. gosh I've, i don't know I, I, 
feel so official setting up a clip. Um, so Howard Barnes is uh, the story of a, a man who wakes up one morning to discover that his life has become a musical. And he's not the kind of man who appreciates such a metamorphosis. So he immediately decides that he hates being in a musical and he sets out on a quest to escape from the musical. So it kind of takes him on a journey through the world of musical theater as he ultimately learns well, what the music means in his life and what's been missing from his life all along. So what we're going to hear is, is a little bit of uh, the opening number. So we've kind of met Howard. He's this his guy kind of stuck in a rut in life. Um, and he wakes up here within the number to discover that things have changed. Okay. Sweet. Let's go. Howard Barnes was a curious case. Though in many ways, he seemed to be a perfectly average American male. He liked organized sports and grilling things and the movies of Steve Martin. But beneath the surface, Howard was in crisis. For, like too many men of his generation, Howard Barnes had forgotten how to feel. And so, Howard closed himself off and drifted through life, numb to the wonders of the world around him. That is, until the day a higher power intervened. Ah! What in the world? Hey there, Howard! Good Lord! Oh, isn't it a beautiful morning? How did you get in here? Well, never mind that. Take a look outside. There's a big, bright, beautiful world out there. seen a more perfect morning oh my god wonders waiting to be unfurled are you um singing joy that hits you without a warning once you open your heart up to the world what the hell is happening Howard, all of the birds are tweeting as the butterflies flutter by. Please stop. They are sending their warmest greeting. See the rainbow embrace the clear blue sky. See the bumblebees zipping, zooming. I think I know what their buzzing means. They say, look at the blossoms blooming on both of the trees that grow in Queens. Howard, the dawn is breaking. Watch as the darkness fades to gray. There is a new world waking, waiting to say, welcome to today. I love it. Something that I was thinking about as I was listening is just like, because, you know, I record, I feel like, a fair amount of, like, demos mm -hmm. where you sort of written a thing and you, um, you know, as soon as you can get the funds to do it, invite all your favorite actor friends to come into the studio and do it for you. And I feel like what a different performance you get from, like, a cast, like, just, like, the confidence of choices of people. I mean, I don't know how much of this is, like, your cast, but to have done this before, I feel like you can hear that. Yeah, I, I think it's a real luxury, and that's one of the reasons um, we decided to, to record this when we did is because we, we had a cast who knew the material and knew the characters inside and out, and, and, and as we looked at the logistics of what it would take to, to put this kind of recording together, that was, 
that was a huge advantage to not have to to further teach and rehearse material with them, you know, because it, it's yeah. just so hard to to do anything, uh, any kind of recording on any scale is <laughs> is really difficult. Um, but we really wanted to to preserve this performance, um, so we, we felt like it was worth the investment. Yeah, I feel that way too. I love recording of any kind. I mean, for someone who's like chosen to be in a field that is like ephemeral. I love just being able to like be in a studio and be like, this is how it goes. No matter what else happens, there's this recording of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you also tend to like record demos like after a concert or a reading. Yeah. With yeah. the people who have like just spent the time working it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, to be, to, to, to like, to be really meta about it. Like, can I ask you like, wh why did you choose that clip to share with us? Well, that's a, was that's that a great a, question. Was that a branding thing? Um, it, it's, <laughs> I, I think that's, uh, first of all, it's the opening number of the show. Right, so it's yeah. the easiest to, to set up. You know, yeah. Later in the, in the show, some of the songs might seem a little uh, stranger out of context. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like it's a, show, it's a song that represents the show yeah. well. It, it sort of uh, captures the tone of it. Um, and we just felt like uh, that would be a, a good way to kind of introduce people to, to the album and to, to kind of hear the hear the scope and sound of, of the way it all came out yeah. uh, sounding and I, I think it's sort of a fun it's a fun introduction to the world of the show yeah to, to think about this guy waking up and, and suddenly being in in the midst of a giant production number right. happening all around him against his will but it also has that push and pull of like it starts with the like you know the creepy voiceover and then it like instantly snaps into the like perky fun um, and it's I like I, it, from your description of the show about a guy who like isn't at home in a musical finding himself in a musical. That's like a, a like a fundamental dichotomy of the show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, you want there to be that that tension um, at all times. Yeah. That, that kind of push and pull, like like you said. Um, and I think that's it's very hopefully it's good to hear play. that it, it comes across yeah. uh, in, in that way, because the opening of, of the show is something that took us a really long time to get sure. exactly right, yeah. um, even up until. You know, I mean, we we worked on the show for about eight years before this production happened, um, and even up until the beginning of of rehearsals, um, we didn't have the the opening sequence of the of the show exactly yeah. right. Uh, even into rehearsals, um, some of some of what even is in that clip was brand new material for that production because uh -huh. um, it was, you know, that it. The show used to literally start with that voiceover that you hear uh, in, in the clip, but um, since then we we realized that. In a show about a man whose life becomes a musical, we want to establish the non-musical version of his life before we hear music. Yeah. So we, we mm -hmm. then kind of created a scene uh, that happens at the very beginning of the show, which was a really tricky balance uh, to find, you know, in, in, in how exactly to start a show. The beginning of, of anything is always so, so difficult. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so it, it took us eight years to figure it out. And I think hopefully, hopefully we've got it at this point. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I guess thinking back, yeah, I've done a lot of rewriting of opening numbers specifically, too. That's yeah, really hard. It's almost like, why do we even bother writing one at the beginning? Like, it's never going to be this. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, had a, I had a college professor uh, in, in just an English composition course who said that he always, 
he would whenever he wrote anything he would automatically throw out the first 10 percent of it and rewrite whatever it was um wow. i haven't really thought about that all that much since then but i think it in a lot of cases can be applied to, to yeah. musicals as well the opening is always the hardest yeah but like you have to write something you have to sure yeah you gotta you gotta start somewhere um do you i mean I, do you guys typically write chronologically like that? Do you normally um, start yeah, at the it's beginning? A semi. I feel like we usually start usually with an idea. There's one or two moments that like sing so clearly, uh-huh. and we'll write those. And then once we have like a couple of those touchstones, we go back and do like loosely chronological mm. skipping things that aren't fleshed out yet. Yeah, I think. How about you guys? I, similar. I I would prefer typically to start from the beginning and write all the way through, even if what is at the beginning doesn't end up actually being the beginning at all. Um, I think my brain is just too linear to, <laughs> to work in another way. Um, and I often, we, I mean, we have written songs first from, from a musical that does not exist and then kind of written the musical around mm-hmm. that. But I, I tend to find that to be a little cart before the horse. Oh, that's interesting. And for um, us, I feel like we usually start with songs really? before there's too much of a book. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why that just does, like, for me, the, the book always, not, not always, but, typically comes first at, as sort of the the blueprint for for where things are um, and and have found that sometimes when we work in other ways the songs that we write first don't often make it all the way to the end yeah I wonder also if it depends I feel like lots of times when we start a new show we already talked about like a really clear idea of what the score is going to sound like mm-hmm. so it's like I can't go too far astray tonally yeah interesting and do you find that 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 typically holds true throughout the process or is there an evolution to it Mm, i think thus far it's held pretty true i know that one show we're at the beginning of now where it's already been through two sort of different tonal worlds and i'm like i don't know what will come yeah but so far when it's been something like 90s girl rock or like the best Julia can figure out on Ableton, those uh-huh. have been like pretty straightforward. <laughs> Interesting. And you're, you're typically able to define that before, while the show's still just a germ of an idea that you guys are, are talking yeah, about. Yeah, I don't know mm. why, but for me that comes like pretty early. Because I feel like if I don't have a clear idea of that, I'm totally paralyzed and I can't mm. like do anything. Yeah, that's interesting. Because like, like there's so many things you could do, and like I agree that like just looking at one lyric and sussing out based on that one lyric what genre or tone it should be in is like really like there's so many choices. Yeah, that's for me. That's always the worst. the The blank page at the very beginning of the process is so intimidating because there are literally <laughs> infinite yeah. choices to be made, and um, gosh, that's that's really hard to get that first draft out for me. Once <laughs> that once the first draft's out there, everything, not that it feels easy, but <laughs> it's easier. Yeah. I have to admit, like, so, like, a year and a half ago, say, or two years ago, Gordon and I decided, so, like, maybe three years ago, we were, like, we're starting a whole bunch of shows, and we, like, started, like, three shows at once. And then for a while, we've just been, like, working on those shows. And last year, we were, like, we've got to finish drafts of all that stuff we started. And now that we're in a place where, like, the next thing to do is, like, start a brand new thing, I'm realizing how much less I like that than, like, writing <laughs> material for a show that I already know what it is. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's so it's so daunting. I mean, we're kind of in the same place right now where yeah. it's, like, we're, we're trying to figure out what we really want to focus on next. And, and that you're essentially deciding how you want to spend the next five years of your life at a minimum, you yeah. know. That's um, <laughs> a really daunting decision. Yeah. And you have to, I mean, I imagine you have to balance like 
the things you're really, really excited about writing with like kind of what you were saying earlier about like, am I going to have to like work too hard at pitching this versus like writing it? Sure. Yeah. yeah the balance between commercial viability and, yeah. and what you're really naturally drawn to. Yeah. Uh, it's Because once a, you sort of realize how long it really takes to put up a musical, I feel like if it were me, I would be less excited about working on something, even if I was really passionate about it, if I didn't have really any idea that it would actually get produced anywhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's what anytime you, you start with the pen to the page, you have no guarantee. Yeah. Even, even the situations where you supposedly have a guarantee, right, like a there's no guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I'm sure as an actor, it's got to be the same thing where you're, oh, you're juggling like, oh, I feel really strongly about this this new project I want to work on yeah, versus like, here's something example, that's going to pay me. For example, working with Gordon and Julia. Oh, oh wait, what were you saying? I think go, I was go. taking it a different direction. No, 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 please do. Um, I was just going to say like the first time I worked with Gordon and Julia, I was like, this piece is incredible. And like, I don't like, I, I want to like commend myself to like the, the five years of the <gasps> de development of the show. But I don't know if I'll get to go along for the ride, you know. And and then even if I do like pin my cart to that horse, there's no guarantee that it right. will actually materialize in anything. Yeah, that's <sighs> man. I do not as as much as I love to complain about being a writer. I do not envy actors one it's, one bit. I, I think you guys have it have it so rough. Um, it's uh, it's interesting, and there are like a, a whole lot of different paths that you know, actors can, can walk down to like figure out their career. But like my path has tended to be like pitching, like, uh, is that the right phrase? Pitching my cart to someone else's horse. Pitching me. Pitching, pitching. There you go. <laughs> pitching my cart to like writer's horses. Mm -hmm. um, like just like getting on, getting on the train of a show and like trying to see it through. Yeah. Um, as opposed to like walking into a random audition and like booking a fancy job that's never happened to me so yeah. <laughs> but that uh, that in and of itself is it's just got to be a heartbreaking endeavor constantly because there are so many things that can derail it along oh, yeah, the way exactly. and, and like you said there's no you have no guarantee yeah um even if the show best case scenario the the show sees the light of day you have no guarantee that you're not going to be replaced with a sitcom star right. you know at the last right. minute to sell tickets I, like i was i was so sure that that was going to happen at least four steps along the road of really? the loneliest girl in the world yeah i was like so sure i was like why would they use me when they can have you know i would imagine like 15 people in my, oh my head God, i can't believe that <laughs> of course we are going to use you yeah but like hindsight is 2020 true true but you know, at the time, I'm like, who am I? You know? <laughs> you started singing that song from Lunas. Yeah. Two, four, six, eight, one. <laughs> um, so, yeah. It's do you guys, I'm trying to think of if I, I do associate you with, like, I guess, certain actors who do a lot of your stuff. But I also feel like because you've had productions in so many different locations, you've got a pretty wide stable. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a nice way of saying we haven't done that much in New York, which is, is really the case. I think I, I don't know that as much as some other writers that, that we have, actors that we're as closely associated with. And I think that's probably because most of, of what we've done has been um, more regional or, 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 or things outside of, of the city anyways. Um, we do have, you know, we do have uh, a number of actors who we really, really love working with um, and, and we'll go back to um, again and again. But we're also always really excited to, to meet and work with new people, too. Yeah. It's interesting. We were just on our last episode of your recording. We were, like, talking about 
the of all the many like roads life can take. Like I feel one hundred percent sure that I want to stay in New York City forever. But the idea of like what would it be like to work in a different city? Mm-hmm. When you go around to like different places, like doing a show in Seattle, is there ever a part of you that's like, what would it be like if I just parked here? Oh, absolutely, all the time. I mean. I, I would look for any excuse to not live in New York in some but way. In some ways, <laughs> it is. It is, and it's the worst city too. I mean, it's it's like it's insane. I really don't understand why anyone who's not working in an industry that ties them to New York City lives <laughs> in New York City because it's just madness. Um, so I always I always play that game where I open up Zillow and look at real estate prices anywhere else I am, and it's wow. just the worst game to play in the world. That um, does not sound like yeah, the very fun right. game. Yeah. I mean, realistically, you know, I, I, I do love it here and, and there aren't that many other places in the world. But Seattle is one like yeah. why, we've spent a good amount of time in Seattle. And every time I'm there, I'm like, oh, this this is this has its perks. <laughs> uh, this has got a lot of good things going on um, that, you know, I mean, it's a great theater city for, for yeah. one, especially musical theater. Like there's a ton of musical theater going on out there, which is really yeah. exciting. Um, and it's gorgeous. I mean, we were there for, for the production of Howard Barnes. We were there at the at the perfect time. So I think we got a little bit of a, <laughs> a, a slightly inaccurate view of what Seattle is like year round. But we were there late summer, early fall, and it was it was just idyllic. It was really amazing. Because I think about it too. I try to unpack because a lot of what we do is out of town as mm-hmm. well. And maybe it's just an excuse because I love living in New York and I have a husband who doesn't want to live here and I'm like invested in saying that I have to be here for my career. Yeah. But like whether whether that's true. Yeah. I, I, I still think in a lot of ways, I don't want to say you have to be here as a writer of musical theater, but I think it's really really it's really hard to make it as a musical theater writer if you are here mm-hmm. i think it's even harder if you're not uh, especially when you're starting out you know what yeah. i mean the opportunities yeah. are here the connections are here um you'll, you'll get those kind of things in ways that you wouldn't elsewhere um perhaps you know if you get to a, a certain point of success you can you can then be elsewhere yeah. um, i do think that's part of yeah that is part of that's a good way of articulating what I feel, the sense of like there is a community of people that is tangibly here. And when you're here, you can feel a part of that community and that in and of itself is really But valuable. also just like running into people and like having them see your face yeah. is like extremely helpful in like keeping th- keeping you in their, you know, like yeah, memory. Staying, like, staying yeah. top of mind. Yeah. With people. yeah. Mm-hmm. I've definitely like run into someone and then two weeks later I'll get I'll get an email from them offering me, you know, a reading or something. Hmm. Just yep. because they I, I was like, oh, yeah, I was you. at the top of their <laughs> mind because they were like, Oh right, I just saw that guy and he's good and whatever, you know, like I feel like this is why I see you at parties that we are both begrudgingly attending. <laughs> like huh. Yep. But those parties are are good to go to. Yes, and like thank goodness we're invited to them. Yeah, and thank goodness (laughs) you're there, so I have someone to stand in the corner with. (laughs) But you know, not to and not to downplay the 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 musical theater scene in any other city, because I do think there are a lot of other places where exciting uh, opportunities exist and are are growing more and more. But um, I just don't think it happens on the level that it happens here. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. The the um. The, just the amount of opportunities. Yeah. And yeah. The, 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 like you said, the connections and the people you run into. I, I mean, I can't yeah. tell you how many opportunities have come our way because of, of some random connection that we had that right. for sure we would not have had elsewhere. Right. Um, yeah. 
even it's it's funny like you have to be here to get the opportunities that you're you're talking about right, you know right. outside of the city <laughs> right um yeah. oh, that's so, yeah. because in a way that's you know this is where people look it's where all those theaters go yeah. to to find new material yeah um, i mean yeah. like every year in october like every regional theater comes to new york <laughs> to, yeah. to go to nam yeah yeah, yeah. for sure I mean, just, I, I thought I just had though. Uh, going back to your your question about sort of having the, your stable of actors, um, which which you guys, I feel like they're definite <laughs> actors. That I, I'm like, oh, that's a Julia and Gordon actor oh, for sure. Um, do you feel like that is? I mean, it's probably both of these things, but is that the active choice of just finding people that you really really like and like working with and like having in the room? Um, or, or do you feel like the, it's more to do with actors who kind of get your style or your get what you do and, and do it well? I think it's both. I think the people who get it often end up being the most fun to have in the room because, you know, you're like firing on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. I think there have been like one or two cases where someone's come into the room because maybe Gordon knows them and loves them. And at first I'm like, you know, oh, maybe like musically, I wouldn't have assumed that we are, you know, like obviously of the same mind. Mm-hmm. But then once you sort of like see their special secret skill in action, you can like fuse with them. And then it feels like even if initially they didn't feel like they were like obviously of your genre, mm-hmm. you can sort of like absorb them and your genre gets a little bit bigger and their genre gets a little bit bigger. Yeah. That's what that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. That idea of it's almost like you you get it or you don't yeah. in a lot of ways. You know yeah. what I mean? And I feel like a lot of times yeah. um, when you're looking at auditioning or, or or casting or anything like that, it's such a particular thing that you're looking for mm-hmm. that's oftentimes almost impossible to communicate yeah. in any way to teach yeah. or to to write in a certain way you know you can't write a stage direction that that clearly defines the tone of a piece typically right. um and i i feel like sometimes there's a struggle in which, which you just want to tell someone like no that's that's not what it is it's yeah. this thing but i i don't think i'm very good at articulating what that is and, and sometimes you don't even know what it is yeah like you can see something and know like that's not working right but like it's hard to even say why or you don't even know what it is until you see you know 120 actors not nail it you know <laughs> in an audition you're like what is it about the way that i've written this that is not coming across clearly you know yeah um, and then the right person walks in and it's all of a sudden like oh no that's there it is right because yeah. it's not that it's not clear it's just that everyone has their own bag of tricks yeah and their own tone. Like, I think about this a lot where, like, like I had this one audition and I was, like, so, so disappointed that I didn't get the job because I just, like, when I read the script, I was, like, I belong in this world. Like, I totally get this character. And then I actually saw the production of the show. And, like, the world that they created was so not at all how it was in my head. And I was, like, oh, great. Like, cool. Like, this is totally fine. I do not belong in this world. Like, if this is what they're looking for, like, thank God they didn't hire me because I would have been miserable. Yeah. Um, And it's just like every actor is going to come in sort of like bringing their own stuff to it and like embodying that in like the absolute best way. But Uh it's not necessarily going to line up with what you what the creative team is looking for to create. I feel like that's such a valuable lesson to learn as as any kind of creative artist. Uh, And it's so hard. Like I as an actor, I, I mean, it's just. 
it must be crushing the the level of disappointment and rejection that you have to deal with on a daily basis. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's it's so hard to realize how infrequently it has anything to do with you or your right. performance mm-hmm. when you right. don't get a role. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I really think that that part of any actor training program should be <laughs> having to sit through EPAs, you know, and sit oh, on the sure. other side of the table and and observe and <sighs> see what what the team is really talking about, you know yeah. I mean? I think that would be really freeing because it's so often just about, well, no, that it's not a rejection of who you are or your ability or what you're doing. It's just for one reason or another, not the right fit, right. you know? Um, yeah. It's also interesting, this idea that like, like when you read it, like even thinking, like if I see a lyric or something and I'm like, oh, well, like the way I would approach this is this to even realize that like the way you think it should be approached is one of like thousands of ways. And then, you know, like if someone, it could be not even your execution of the thing, but just that your initial idea was, could have been so many things. Do you know what I mean? Not exactly. Yeah. I knew I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know. Are you, are you saying like the, the recognition that your approach to something is one of infinite approaches yes, and just because feels- yours doesn't fit with the vision of whoever's making that decision doesn't mean that it's a, it's the wrong impulse to Right. Have. When something like an approach can feel so intrinsic and obvious and native, like how could there ever be another approach? Sure. But in your case, like that's absolutely true when like you and Gordon are writing a show, for example, like that's your show and you're creating the tone, you know? It's like it's wh- it's when I come in and I have my approach to the show that doesn't line up with yours where like then it's like oh there are a million different ways but like there's there's one <laughs> way that I'm not going to say the right way but like one way that like the creative team is like aiming towards. I guess that's true. If you get there first, you get to take yeah, the Yeah. If if you have ownership, like it's it's yours. Like I I don't think it's too helpful to like second guess that. You know <laughs> what I mean? And like, and I don't think it's helpful for me to second guess it as the actor going into Mm -hmm. the audition. Like, I don't think it's helpful for me to think what is the world that this creative team is trying to do? Because if I'm doing that and trying to like fit myself into this thing that doesn't feel right to me, it's never going to be the right thing. I was just talking with a friend about this the other day about how good we think we are at guessing what other people are thinking or wanting. Mm. He was saying, he was like, I don't think I'm very good at it. So I never, I just assume I never know what anyone wants. I'm always wrong. Whereas maybe wrongly, I always feel like pretty confident that like, I'm pretty sure I sort of know what they're thinking. And like one of us is probably wrong. (laughs) Interesting. Or like different people can be like different levels of intuitive. True. And certain (laughs) people are easier and harder to read than others. Yeah. But it's a, it's a really dangerous game. I think you're you're really onto something, though. The minute you start trying to give someone what they want versus what your instinct and your interpretation of something is, I, th- I think you're you're in trouble. You yeah. know what I mean? Because you never. I mean, at least I I think I <laughs> yeah, would align yeah. more with your friend, where I feel like I never know really what people want. And the minute I try to predict it, um, I I go away from from what is truthful to, to myself um, and that gets in trouble. You know, any, I mean, as a writer, I think you go through the same thing anytime you submit for either a job or, or any kind of award or, or a grant opportunity. Totally. The minute you start thinking, oh, what, a, what are the readers looking for? Um, who, who are the readers for this yeah. thing? <laughs> and how can I please them with, with how I present myself? I, I think that's that's really dangerous and what you really want to do is is say what it what 
what represents me best as as an actor or as a writer like yeah. what is my particular take on whatever this is and and how can i show my best effort towards that uh and you, that's all you can control you can't control how what anyone's looking for or how they're going to respond you're right though the perfect writer parallel is awards because i feel like i've even asked you because you guys have won some fancy awards you know like okay what is the thing that the larson is looking for like what is the <laughs> ebb really looking for mm -hmm. it's so hard not to feel like it's a puzzle that you can crack right Right. Yeah. I mean, we do the same thing. You talk to people who've, who've won and say, how did, yeah. how did you figure this out? And then you try to apply it. But it, you know, it, it, it's so hard because you can never, ever control that. Like you have yeah. no idea as an actor, you have no idea who's sitting on, on the other side of that table yeah. and exactly what they're looking for, how they envision a particular character yeah. or a particular world. Um, you, you can't control that. You just got to go in and, and yeah. give it your best shot and, and hope. And that every you're time what I have for. tried to say, like, I think this is what they're looking for. I've been like dead wrong, <laughs> you know? So like, I think it's like not even worth thinking about. I mean, beyond like some very basic considerations, but like, yeah. it's not even worth like thinking like, oh, this must be what they're looking for. So let me like, you know, if it's, if it's not aligned with like what I'm seeing and what I feel like I can bring authentically. It's funny also how if you do get like an iota of feedback, you can really latch onto it. Mm, like, cause mm -hmm. now that with the Larson, they do sometimes like, they'll give you like two sentences of feedback. And then I know the next year it's like that parable with like, the guy is always, you know, taking the advice from the thing before and like he's supposed to tie like a string around a cow and then he buys cheese and he tries to sting around the string around the cheese and that doesn't work because it's not the same thing. Like our thing last time was about tempo. It was like mm. more variation on tempo. And the next year we did it, it was just like desperately like what are the most different tempos we have? It's probably also not correct. <laughs> yeah. And who knows if that same person was even on the reading committee right, the next not. year, right? Yeah. Like you can really easily take that kind of feedback and, and go too far with it, you know, and let it really affect you in, in ways that it probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, are, so you're saying like you took that feedback as how to apply next year as opposed yeah. to like how to sort of like enrich your like bag of tricks for writing you know what I mean like yeah I mean a little bit you know it made me think about like should I write more up tempos you know when you're starting <laughs> anything like could this be faster yeah but mainly yeah just to apply yeah is there anything that you've been like thinking about lately you know what I mean like I like think about a lot of things but like Okay, so like, <laughs> like any, what any, you that you wanna, any that you want to share? Anything I've been thinking about lately. I mean, I think a lot about risk as it applies to theater in general and musical theater specifically and the relationship between commercial musical theater and necessary risks that are taken if that makes any sense. Could, like you, I, could you unpack that a little I, bit? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've certainly not come to any conclusions <laughs> or, or I, don't, I don't know that I have anything profound to say about it, but Are you talking I think more about business or about like art? I'm talking about both. I'm uh -huh. talking about okay. the sort of the, the um, connection and conflict between the two um, yeah. as, it, as it applies to sort of the economics of theater, um, specifically, I guess, Broadway, yeah. you know, being how most, what most people look to as 
sort of the, the be all and end all, though it certainly is not of particularly musical theater. Right. Um, I think the economics of Broadway right now are such that it is such an enormous risk for a producer to put any kind of musical on Broadway or on any, even, you know, in a regional theater, like the, mm-hmm. the economics are, are pretty staggering. Um, that it naturally leads to risk averse thinking that um, uh-huh. producers, uh, anyone who's investing money in a production are looking for reasons that something will return their investment, right? Because mm-hmm. ultimately that's like theater is a business for better or worse. Um, and I, I think that's really dangerous. Um, I, I can you know, I would love to rail against it, but I can completely relate to, you know, if, if someone is, is taking the risk of putting millions of dollars into something, you can see why they're going to want to make the safest bet that they can possibly make. Yeah. Um, but as, as a, a creator of musical theater, I, I think that's just incredibly depressing <laughs> and, um, dangerous i guess um, yeah, well, especially when we're so bad at estimating risk you know like right. it's not like all broadway musicals recoup no so obviously we haven't totally cracked it sure and a yeah. lot of the ones that you would expect wouldn't work end up working really well yeah financially and yeah. and yeah. vice versa the ones yeah. that, that seem to be tailor-made to right. be you know to to just make the tourists go wild <laughs> uh, oftentimes do not work so i, I don't know that that anyone has has figured it out yet, yeah. um, but I'm really interested to see kind of where where it goes from here because, um, you know, there there are fewer and fewer opportunities for musicals that are not designed to go to Broadway, right. you know, mm. that are not designed to be those those commercial musicals, um, you know, sort of with the the disappearance of of the off Broadway uh, house, other than the kind of the not for profits, um, you know, I I think you see. Fewer and fewer risks being taken, yeah. um, which also makes me really, really excited when those riskier projects yeah. that, that you're talking about end up being really successful right. um, and and just really surprising everyone. And I, I, every time that happens, I, I sort of get my hopes up, like, oh well, now this maybe people are gonna see this as the model, um, yeah. Yeah. and right. It, you know, next season we'll see we'll see seven new original musicals um, yeah. on well, on like, Broadway. What and blew my mind? I I still have trouble wrapping my head around it, but like the fact that Hamilton became—I mean—and Hamilton is also a show that like seems tailor made to be a big Broadway show, right? But also like it crossed over into like the national zeitgeist in like yeah. such a huge way that like I didn't know that a musical could be as popular as it was yeah um and i wonder like like so it like it demonstrated that it's possible for a new musical to be that popular and i want like i oh i don't know if we've talked about this i um a couple years ago at encores they did that um it was basically like a review instead of like doing the normal encores where they just take one show they did like scenes from like six or seven shows and i was watching it and i was like okay, like, this is fine. We're, we're showing, like, a scene and two songs from a musical from 1950. <laughs> okay. But, like, what if there was a platform as massive as, like, Encores at City Center mm. for new musicals where you, like, instead of showing, like, a song out of context, you, like, can do, like, a scene and two songs. You know what I mean? To And, like, 
like what if there <laughs> there's there's clearly an audience that could get fired up about this mm-hmm. but someone just has to like you know like tell them about it someone just has to like let them know you know yeah, yeah it's it's a tough nut to crack um i don't i don't know what the solutions are but yeah. clearly there there are audiences out there who are excited by really quality work yeah uh whatever that is you know um this is always my worry though is like when like one of those shows that you love and i don't have a specific example in mind but i feel like this has happened like gets an opportunity you know somewhere regional or somewhere in new york and then doesn't sell well and it's like maybe everything i think is wrong with like a show that i think is artistically so exciting and risky doesn't end up being a good investment for them then it's like i don't know maybe no one should you know do good shows if there is not an audience that we can find to pay to see them. Well, my, okay, so my experience, and maybe I'm like completely wrong, but like I've seen a number of shows on Broadway that I thought were not great, that the audience was just like fully on board for. Mm -hmm. And so like, I guess the two paths I can go down is like, I have a different taste than like everyone else in this audience or everyone else in this audience is gonna, like it's a low bar, right? Yeah. So like, so like anything that be- <laughs> anything better, they're also gonna love. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So like, my thinking is like, let's just get like, and it, but it's the risk thing, right? Like, let's just get all of these like risky musicals. And so the only options on Broadway are to go to these <laughs> risky shows. Then they're gonna then they're gonna come because they want to go to a Broadway show if they haven't heard of anything. If none of them are based on like a big you know, brandy movie, they're going to pick something. They're going to be like, oh, this is great. You know what I mean? But you got to, you got to get over that initial risk. (laughs) Or maybe I'm just delusional, but. That's really interesting. I've never thought about what would happen if none of the options yeah. Yeah. bankable title. Yeah. Yeah. You would just have to get all of the producers to agree. (laughs) But then there would always be that one who'd be like, no, I'm going to do, you know, I won't say an example because everything that's popping in my head has already been done. But I was having that problem too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It also makes me wonder, like, what the next thing is. You know, like, for, like, film and TV, I feel like, you know, the internet was, like, a big thing because then you can do webisodes and, like, there was a lot more Mm. scrappy DIY stuff that could reach a lot of people and, like, what that is with musical theater. I mean, Mm. I guess it's, like, putting songs on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know if this is at all connected to what you just said, but it made me think of it for some (laughs) reason. Um, Another thing I've I've been thinking about is how how the theater will respond to the age of Netflix um, mm. and how when when we've got to compete for people's attention and time, uh, I think you're going to see, I hope you're going to see the, a lot more theater that is inherently theatrical and that mm. really, really relies on and takes full advantage of having a live audience and having that connection between performer and an audience um, in ways that maybe we haven't seen before. We haven't seen a lot of before Um, things that projects that are uniquely theatrical that must be done in a theater with a live audience, as opposed to something you can sit home and watch on your couch because it's really, really tempting to just stay home and watch TV nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's there's so much good material available to everyone that I, I'm excited to see how the theater keeps up and I how it um, how it kind of responds to that and raises the bar. 
the other thing that I feel like Netflix does is like take risks on niche markets. Like they will fund a show for the two percent who wants to watch like Japanese Suzanne and eat a tart. Yeah. And like somehow they make that work. Which is fascinating because they I mean they have the means to make that work. You know, yeah. what I mean that can be financially viable to them. Um, so how do as a as a theatrical producer, how how are you able to kind of do the same thing? Which obviously you can't because Netflix is is able to so specifically silo and target their audiences. Um, but there's gotta be some sort of yeah. corollary, right, in the theater. Like how you know if anything, Netflix is telling you there, there's an audience out there for yeah. anything. Like you <laughs> yeah. can make anything, and somebody out there will respond yeah. to it. Um, yeah, which is such a nice idea. Yeah, like none of us are alone. Right, but how do you get enough of those people to to come out and pay money to to go to a theater to see yeah, whatever that is? Yeah, all the same place at the same time. I mean, they're just you yeah, know because watching Netflix, even though you're paying a monthly subscription, it feels free. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like you're, like, paying money that night for your entertainment. Right. Do you think that the main thing, like, the biggest barrier that keeps people out of theaters is money or time? I think it depends on the person. But I think for a lot of people, it's money. Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah, I think money is a, a big one. I think it's also, I mean, if you're talking about, if you're talking about the general population versus an yeah. already theater-going mm. audience. Right. Mm-hmm. I think for an already theater-going audience, it's, it's I would say, almost definitely money would yeah. be the big obstacle. <laughs> um, the general population, I, I still think there's, even even with Hamilton, I mean, hopefully Hamilton has, has made some tangible difference, but I, I just think there's a big stigma mm-hmm. still attached to the The people don't know really what theater is, and they automatically assume that yeah. they, they're not going to like it, and it's going to be some yeah. dry, boring evening where they sit for three hours and mm-hmm. are not right. entertained. And when the price is $160, right. and like when you're not a theater person and you don't know that there are discounts available, yeah, it's like, why would I go spend $160 for something that I'm not like su- super fired up about sure you know which is exactly why all of the <laughs> you know all of the shows that that we're talking about that are the adaptations of of popular movies right. you know that's why they do well it's because if you're the risk even for an audience member if you're in new york for your one weekend a year that you go to new york and you've got a, a list of titles to choose from and most of them you've never heard of you know, but there's that one that's based on the movie that you liked. At least you've got that to go on as, right. as some sort of, um, if, if not guarantee, some, some sort of assurance that there's a chance you'll like it, you know. Um, yeah. So I think that's that's something you fight against as someone who, who writes original material. <laughs> right. This actually does make me feel w- more warmly towards the Tony Awards. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they give you a little cross-action, granted only to the people who are tuning in to watch the Tony Awards. <laughs> But oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what do they call it? Like Broadway's biggest night. Uh-huh. It's like a uh, one big ad for Broadway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like this is sort of a depressing note to end on. Do we have any positive thoughts about the world? That's all, Rob. <laughs>